Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I preached on the parable of the dishonest manager as Jesus tells it in this morning's gospel lesson three years ago. I'm going to preach on it again today uh, for two primary reasons. Number one, nobody remembers what I said three weeks ago, let alone three years ago. And secondly, because our vicar requested it. I've gotten to know him a little bit over these last couple of months, so I'm pretty sure that the reason he asked if I would preach on this text was that he wanted to see how a highly trained and experienced professional handles a tough text, although I have a sneaking suspicion he really just wanted to see me crash and burn. <laughs> he says that's not the case. Our text is the entire gospel lesson. Right now, let's just focus on Jesus' words at the very end of the parable. Jesus says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's what Jesus says. Let's talk about that. You may be seated. I'll encourage you to uh, follow along in the sermon outline on page three, I think it is, of the service folder. So why not? Why can't we serve both God and money? And where did that even come from anyway? How does that fit in with this parable of the dishonest manager? Well, actually, the very reason Jesus told the parable was to make that precise point, that, that we can't serve two masters. The problem with the man in the parable was that he was trying to do just that. He was, he was uh, trying to take care of the affairs of his boss while at the same time feathering his own nest, and he couldn't do it. He got caught. Now this is where the interpretation of the parable starts to get a little bit involved, which means I didn't come up with it myself. I, I got this from some of my sermon study. And uh, it's, it's really assuming some things, which can be dangerous, of course, but is, is assuming um, some of what we know about the culture of Jesus' time. So here's what the, uh, I think a decent interpretation is. The dishonest manager knew that he could not rescue himself from this predicament into which he had gotten himself. So he decided to rely on the owner to do that. That's quite a thought, isn't it? The very man whose trust he had betrayed, he's thinking is going to bail him out of this predicament. He had it all figured out how that could happen. The strategy that he used was to rework the, the terms of the contract with the tenants. I think it said debtors in the scripture uh, reading. Probably best to think of these individuals as sharecroppers. And so to, uh, to curry some favor for himself, he did something that would cost the owner some money but which also would kind of put the owner in a, in a bit of a predicament that would force him in the direction anyway that this dishonest manager hoped that he would go. So by reducing the rent, the owner had, could do one of two things. He could either go along with the new terms 
and appear in the community, which was a huge deal in those days, appear to be generous and wise, or he could renege on this new deal and become a, ashamed in the community. And so we know what he did. And I, and I think that's a, that's a pretty plausible interpretation of the parable, but here's the problem. That dishonest manager is praised in the story, both by the owner and also by Jesus. How does that work? Well, actually, this isn't such a tough one to resolve either because the dishonest manager was praised not for his dishonesty, but for his strategy, strategy of relying on the owner's mercy. And the, and the praise that he received is, is kind of like that which hometown fans would give a visiting team when they make a really great play and there's a polite round of applause. Except there's another problem. Jesus' explanation raises almost as many questions as it answers. He says the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Okay. What does that mean? Actually, I found a quote. I won't read it to you because I've done that in the last couple uh, services and people's eyes just kind of glazed over and it didn't do any good anyway. I think we just need to chalk some of this up to some of those enigmatic sayings of Jesus that, that we're probably not fully going to understand. We just, uh, we just set those aside though. And, and that's what we need to do right now because we can understand these words from Jesus. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in very much. And if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? There it is. Jesus is talking about trust. Trust is the central issue in the parable. The owner had, had trusted the manager to take care of his possessions. The, uh, the manager, of course, betrayed that trust and then realized he couldn't even trust himself to take care of himself. The sharecroppers were trusting the new terms that, that the, of the agreement would be abided by, and the uh, manager was trusting in the owner to make the right decision from his perspective anyway in that regard as well. Trust is the central issue in the parable because it is also the central issue in our relationship with God. And that trust is a two-way street. Not only does God invite us to trust him, he also says that he has entrusted us with the awesome responsibility of managing for him the things that are his. It's tempting at this point to ask how that's working out for God. Not because I'm suggesting that he made a mistake, no. But I am suggesting that we make a terrible mistake when we betray God's trust. Which we do when, like the dishonest manager in the parable, 
we treat things that are his as if they were ours. Oh, wait. Did, did I just call you dishonest? Uh, yeah, I did. And I'm admitting to that myself as well. Often we are not honest with ourselves. We'd rather lie to ourselves, especially when it comes to sin. Whatever sin it is that we happen to especially be enjoying at the time, we, we lie to ourselves and say, well, it isn't so bad. It doesn't really offend God, and it certainly doesn't hurt anybody else, so it's no big deal. Plus, how often have we deceived ourselves into thinking that what we have belongs to us, not to God? Or don't you ever act as if that's the case, keeping for yourself what, what God has intended for you to share? Maybe even spending money on sinful things. Imagine that. We spend God's money on ungodly things. And so often without even giving it a, a second thought. Well, you know what happened in the parable? When that manager was wasting the owner's possession, somebody went to the manager and told him all about it, and, and that started an inquiry and a, and a whole chain of events. Well, something similar happens in our case, although with entirely different results. When Satan goes to God and brings charges that we are wasting God's possessions, the Lord does not demand an accounting from us. If he did, there's no way we could survive the audit. Instead, while those Charges are most certainly true. It is a hugely tremendous debt. God dismisses those charges and transfers the debit to the account of Jesus. Now the question for us is this. What are we going to do with this good news? What effect will it have on our lives? What, what changes might it prompt in our living for example, one time while I was worshiping in, an, in another Lutheran church, I heard the pastor dismiss uh, people from the communion table with these words, go in peace, enjoy your sins, they are forgiven. I could not believe my ears. Which is a good thing, because that isn't actually what he said. Here's what he really said, go in peace and joy your sins are forgiven. Maybe you can see why I was confused. And maybe you can agree that sometimes we all get confused. Don't we sometimes treat the absolution for sin as an invitation to sin? Oh, sounds like a win-win scenario. God likes to forgive sins. We like to, to commit them. So there you go. Win-win. But if we think that's the case, we are once again not being honest with ourselves. 
Which is also true when we think that we can foolishly and, and carelessly walk into temptation, walk right up to sin, and then back away untouched. Not likely. Walking into sin almost always results in giving into sin. And this is a trust issue for us as we are, are trusting our intellect, our desires, our willpower, ourselves, not God. It can't be both and. Jesus says it's either or. Either we trust God or we trust ourselves. I'm going to suggest to you that trusting God is the way to go for all kinds of reasons, of course, but, but here's one we maybe don't always think about that much, and that is that our trusting in God is what Satan fears most. Well, he can easily outsmart us when we trust ourselves, but he doesn't stand a chance against God. And that's why he focuses so much of his attention on trying to persuade us that, well, we don't always need God, that sometimes we can get along just fine with, without him. That's been a very effective strategy for Satan. So has his time-tested approach of, of whispering to us that, that we can't totally trust God to, to always know what's best for us or, or even to always want what's best for us. And when we start listening to that whispering, that's when, without meaning to, of course, we begin to shift our trust from God to Satan. And that's the real trust issue. Which brings us back to our text. The words of Jesus, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you want an example of that, you need look no further than this morning's Old Testament lesson, the prophet Amos railing against the wealthy in Israel at the time. Uh, by the way, who are the wealthy in Frankenmuth? Ev Mickey's got it, that's right. Everybody who's sitting here now, we have wealth beyond imagination, especially compared to uh, people who lived in Frankenmuth 50 years ago or, or 100 years ago. And so, so maybe Amos's words are for us as well. The uh, wealthy in Israel at the time of Amos were, were trying to walk a tightrope, claiming to, to be serving God and, and to love God, and they failed miserably. They were loving themselves and serving themselves. We, and, and Amos pointed that out by the way that they were, were cheating the poor and, and treating the lowly. Jesus was absolutely correct. You cannot serve God and money. Now, he couldn't have said, you cannot serve God and self, and it really would have meant the same thing, but it would not have had the same impact. It wouldn't have grabbed our attention because money always gets our attention. And if you think, or maybe if you hope, that none of this applies to you because, well, you don't serve money, then substitute the word 
trust for serve. Because that is really what Jesus is talking about. Since the best service we can give to God is to trust God. Do we do that? Not perfectly. But God doesn't demand perfect trust. In fact, he doesn't demand trust at all. No, he invites it. And we would do well to regularly and intentionally accept that gracious invitation because he is perfectly trustworthy. We can't say that about anyone or anything else. Not money, not ourselves, not anything. We cannot serve two masters. But then again, why would we want to? When the master we serve has first served us, giving his very life for us. We cannot serve two masters. Let's recommit ourselves to serving God and him alone. Amen. And the peace of God, that peace which comes only from trusting him, knowing his love and his forgiveness, that peace of God which passes all understanding, may that guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.